Rotarians and guests, it gives me particularly great pleasure today to introduce to you Adam Mooney. Adam is Chief Executive Officer of Good Shepherd Microfinance, the leading microfinance organisation in Australia. In previous lives, uh, Adam had senior finance roles with Merrill Lynch and with ANZ. And my spies at ANZ told me he was held in particularly high regard there and could have had a stellar career there had he stayed. But he chose instead to spend his life improving a lot of those who don't have a lot. Um, he's been a board director, or he is a board director of PNG Microfinance Limited. He's a board committee member of the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples. He's a past co-chair of the Indigenous Financial Services Network and a past director of AMK Microfinance in Cambodia. Adam has master's degrees in applied finance and in international development. He has participated in um, programs at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government's Rethinking Financial Inclusion program and Harvard Business School's Strategic Leadership for Inclusive Finance program. He has been voted one of the 25 most influential people in the entire social sector in Australia. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Adam Mooney. Thank you, Peter, and uh, good afternoon, one and all. Um, absolutely delighted to be here uh, in a group of people who really understand what it means to live in a thriving world a th uh, with thriving communities where people uh, have hope, have direction, and are able to access the resources and the human resources and economic resources that they need. And I uh, particularly uh, want to thank President Mary Barry for welcoming uh, me here today and to Sharon Johnson also for the invitation. The topic that I'm talking about today is count me in and hope and financial inclusion. And uh, in researching some of the more, more recent programs that the Rotary Club of Melbourne has been undertaking, the banner headline uh, on your website over the last few, few weeks has been Hope for the Homeless. And this is a theme that I will come back to many, many times. Uh, and I think that today, in, t in today's world, there are neuroscientists in every country that have studied what happens to the brain when hope is present. The, particularly the amygdala brain waves that become very, very active when hope is present. And as human beings, all seven billion of us around the planet, our ability to become actors in our own future when hope is present. And that's the theme that I will continue to, to come back to today. It's, I'm delighted to be, to be welcomed here by um, a former colleague in Peter Beersley from ANZ, and, and thank you for those very, very kind words, uh, Peter. 
Um, I have got an extended group with me today. Um, just at the end of the room here, I've got my lovely children as part of a school holiday program uh, that are here. They actually said, to, you know, Dad, what do you do when you disappear every day and come back um, later in the evening? And uh, I said, well, you can find out for yourself. But I, I don't do this every single day. There's Millie, Will and Hamish at the end of the room who, who are here and um, very much enjoying shadowing Dad uh, for today. So thank you for making them welcome as well. <laughs> These certainly give me hope uh, for the future. I also acknowledge that we're meeting today on the ancestral lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And being here on level 35 in the Sofitel Hotel in this wonderful location, um, Auntie Joy Murphy, who has been a mentor and a friend of mine for, for many years, I've heard her speak here, right at this very lectern uh, in the past, talking about uh, this significant place as a place where Bunjil, the creator spirit of the Wurundjeri people and the Kulin Nation, uh, the eagle, the creator spirit, would, would circle and look over and care for Melbourne uh, in its inimitable way. So I acknowledge uh, Aboriginal people that are in the room today uh, and also pay my respects to elders past, present and especially future. There are some wonderful Aboriginal leaders uh, that are giving uh, all of us hope uh, in Australia. So, hope. We all are born into this world with hope. We all want to experience the fullness of life. And that doesn't mean happiness or being elated all of the time, but the, to, be, to be conscious as human beings coming into the world, taking risks, Re having a relationship with those around you that is based on trust and respect and really having this sense of human connectedness and, 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 a, and a connectedness about us being on a journey, heading somewhere where uh, the world is better, I'm aware of my own aspirations, I have an opportunity to realise my aspirations, but equally uh, I'm conscious in my grief, in my fears, in my anger, in my anxieties, but also in the celebration uh, of life as well. And Good Shepherd Microfinance, as an organisation, our purpose is to enable the economic well-being of people on low incomes, especially women and girls. And I'll come back to, uh, and that's where Peter and I did meet when Peter was a board director of Good Shepherd Australia New Zealand. Uh, we met six years ago. Um, prior to, well, we, we, we met each other again after, after meeting at ANZ um, earlier in our careers. I want to tell you uh, three or four stories that I think encapsulate what microfinance is about and what hope through microfinance and financial inclusion is about. The first one is about um, a young man a young youth really, at 16 years old, playing football for Essendon Reserves. This is back in the 1950s. Playing football at Essendon Reserves, who rode his horse one day to what is now the Greenvale Reservoir, was then the Greenvale Lake in northern Melbourne. Tied his horse up under a tree. His mates were already swimming in the, pool, in, in the, in the lake, dived in, and disappeared for two or three minutes. Dived in and had uh, hit the back of his head 
in a semi-submerged um, uh, barrel that some farmer had thrown into the lake and became a quadriplegic. Was rushed to the Austin Hospital and uh, in his part of his recuperation fell in love with the, the nurse, one of the nurses that was, uh, that was caring for him. And with the assistance of an occupational therapist, discovered that sport and uh, well, sporting uh, pursuits were not his only talent. That he had this latent talent for art, artists, uh, for, for 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 pottery, but uh, discovered the ability to paint with the brush in his mouth, and became a world famous artist, and travelled all around the the world. Uh, making, doing paintings and Christmas cards for the Australian Mouth and Foot Painting Artists Association. And seeing that uh, artist, his own, in his own words, describing how difficult it was while he was earning significant income to convince a bank to, borrow, to, to be able to take out a mortgage loan to buy the house that he'd been living in for 10 years the bank still saw him as a person with a disability that would limit his ability to repay the loan, despite that the doctors said he was going to live for a long time, particularly uh, because the, 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 he had married a nurse. Another person uh, that is very relevant to this story is um, a now 48-year-old plasterer who, uh, mid-career, uh, was identified and diagnosed with having bipolar disorder, which led to um, alcohol and and drug uh, drug abuse, and found it difficult to continue to work when uh, suffering with the, with these conditions. Spent two stints in the wonderful organisation known as Odyssey House uh, in Lower Plenty here in in, in Melbourne, and uh, while he was in Odyssey House was able to, and, and just about to come out of an 18-month-long program at Odyssey House, really understanding and refining the dignity of humanity and believing in himself and his own strengths, uh, took out a no-interest loan through Odyssey House's no-interest loan program. And that's a program of Good Shepherd Microfinance, and I will come back to that. Took out a no-interest loan to be able to furnish a house that he needed when he was coming out of Odyssey House. And that made a huge difference. In his own words, dignity, self-esteem, and trust were transmitted between two people, the loans worker at Odyssey House and himself as a client, uh, feeling worthy that somebody was looking in the eye, looking him in the eye, and believing him. Those two stories are very significant to me because both of those people are related to me. The quadriplegic, that I, the man uh, in a wheelchair that became an artist, is my father, who passed away 18 months ago. The plasterer is my brother. Both of those people needed hope, needed somebody to back them when the chips were down. And fortunately, the Commonwealth Bank did see the capacity of my father. And after 10 years of asking, decided, yes, this person is worthy of a home loan and, 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 and saw the partnership between uh, my mother and himself. And my brother, 
has has bought the things that he needed for his house and is well and truly on the way to recovery and leading a normal life again, whatever that may be, and how, how he defines his aspirations, there is certainly a great hope for, for his life for the future. That seems self-indulgent for me to tell stories about my own family, but I think for everybody here, I'm sure that you know of people, family members, friends, um, or, or business colleagues, that have found themselves in a similarly difficult situation and had access to or didn't have access to the resources, the supports that were needed when the chips were down. And so I just wanted people to, to, to think about that. One of the significant defining moments in my career, Peter mentioned that I, that I did have a career at both Merrill Lynch and, and ANZ. I was the chief financial officer of the, the biggest division at ANZ um, up until 2003. And it was actually my wife. We we're just talking with Stephanie about Nepal. My, my wife's done some work in Nepal uh, as well, and, and she works with Oxfam. And it was meeting her and her colleagues and talking about uh, the importance of financial inclusion that made me think there is something else out there. And I think I surprised my wife when she said, um, you know, I, re I would like to spend six months in, uh, in a Southeast Asian country to become an HIV AIDS programmer. And uh, I surprised her when I said, I'm coming. And I took a career break from ANZ, what was then a career break, and found myself working for an Irish organisation, Mary, you may know it, um, con Concern Worldwide, uh, a, a very well-known Irish development agency. And uh, two weeks after arriving in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and as part of my familiarisation to the country, was invited to a very remote community where um, Malaysian logging companies were cutting down the trees at a rapid rate and paying uh, an incentive fee to the government to, to look the other way. And our program was all about enabling people that were very concerned, uh, obviously the, the people on low incomes, to gener generate a livelihood from the forest, from non-timber forestry products. And for me, that day, sitting underneath a tree with 30 women and 10 men and seeing a skilled development facilitator asking two questions was, was, was uplifting. The first question, what happens around here? So describe your environment. Secondly, what are your dreams and aspirations for yourself and for your family for the future. And with those two questions, over the next three hours, we saw a brilliant display of visual, strength-based community mapping. Here are the opportunities. Asking people, what do you like to do? What are you good at? And, and they realised that, 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 that weaving baskets from non-timber forestry uh, forest products, fishing, developing fishing cooperatives. There were seven or eight core skills that this community had, and by the end of the day, there were, with the 40 people that were present, there were five groups that were put together, taking out a small loan, having mentoring, and, and, and finding a, a cooperative framework where seven or eight people together 
said, we are the, the weaving cooperative, we are the fishing cooperative, we are the market gardening cooperative, and getting a small loan to buy a fishing boat rather than rent it. To, uh, to get the, the tools and the techniques to be able to grow produce uh, and, and develop um, uh, basic agriculture and buy bikes to get the produce to markets over a longer distance was uplifting. Now, I was absolutely inspired. This, I was in the town, for those that know Cambodia, I was in a re remote part uh, outside of a central town called Persat, near Lake Tonle Sap, the big lake. And I, uh, at the end of the day, I went for a run from my hotel along, along the lake and was coming back to my hotel room getting ready to meet the team that I was there with for dinner. And I could hear a commotion uh, from the restaurant across the road. And that commotion was the voice of a, a young woman screaming and saying in, in basic Khmer that I did understand at, at that time, no, no, stop it. And you could see people running towards the restaurant and then silence. And you could then see uh, a young woman, in fact, what turned out to be a 16-year-old girl being carried out of the restaurant unconscious, put, put into a car and rushed off to hospital. And we went over and, and uh, we had dinner there that night and asked, you know, what, what happened? What was going on there? And this was, the story was that this young 16-year-old girl, not even a woman at the age of 16, um, had been beaten by a client that was there the previous night who came back and they had an argument over money. And the backstory is the story that was in the, the newspaper the very next day was that unfortunately this young 16-year-old uh, young girl had died. She'd been beaten to death as a result of an argument that she had, uh, she was a, what's called a beer girl. Who, for the, again, for those of who have been to Cambodia, you might see them in a restaurant wear a, a satin dress with Heineken or Tiger or whatever brand of beer they're promoting. And they earn, a, 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 they earn $2, $3 a day, if, if that. And uh, they are forced, because of the exploitation, and uh, lack of opportunity, some of them do supplement their income with sex work. And this young, this girl of 16 had been only three months earlier identified and placed by her uncle in another remote part, an internally trafficked person, another remote part of Cambodia called Battambong, brought to Persat, this regional centre, and, uh, and spirited into this very, very hazardous work. And really, um, here, and, and the, 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 the hardest part for me to acknowledge was that our program that we were there that day talking about in Persat was due to go to Battambong, her town, the very next day to, to talk to people about microenterprise. And really, the lack of economic opportunity, the lack of hope, somehow um, the society in that particular place, her uncle, had diminished this young 16-year-old girl to an economic unit to be exploited where he was receiving part of the, the, the income that she was generating, uh, all run through the, the, the restaurant owner as being a very, for, for me, seeing the contrast, the hope, the dignity, 
the, uh, the, the control that was in the eyes of all of those 40 people that same day and seeing that young woman in, in a situation that we're all trying to avoid was absolutely and utterly confronting. And from that point, um, you know, my career was very much focused on the economic well-being of people on low incomes, especially women and girls. And so that takes me to being part of Good Shepherd. Um, I, I, I spent two and a half years in Cambodia and had the opportunity to travel to the DPRK to North Korea to inspect uh, winter wheat programs. I was there for two stints of three weeks at a time, which was absolutely fascinating. Uh, looking at the, the, the distribution of the wheat and making sure that it was fair and equitable as, as a concern was an investor in that country, to Bangladesh where I'd looked at microfinance. And so for me, um, from 2003 to 2006 was a, uh, a dream study tour, if you like, for me to learn and hear what's happening uh, to where people that have strengths, when given an opportunity to form a cooperative where Again, these eight people collectively part of this cooperative where they're already pre-existing strengths. Someone became a bookkeeper, someone became a marketer, someone became a logistician, someone became a, a, a transport person, someone became a strategist, someone became uh, the, 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 uh, the guild expert of, of weaving um, and, and training. So, and inbuilt within this cooperative was a, was a welfare system that if somebody is sick, um, for three days in a row, you'll continue to receive your income. These, uh, I think, developments in the Western world uh, of the welfare state have started to be applied informally uh, around the world, and this, this process is seriously liberating uh, many, many people. You may know uh, that um, there are, around the world, of, of, of the seven, I think it's 7.6 billion of us, that there are two and a half billion people that are deemed to be severely or completely financially excluded. That means they can't get access to adequate savings, they can't get access to even, in some cases, a transaction account, a bank account, the ability to remit and transfer funds, or in many cases, are uh, excluded from accessing credit when, uh, again, when the chips are down. If you don't have savings, uh, as a buffer for your own resilience, access to credit is often a, a, a last resort. And so there is, there, there is, this is the stark reality of the world today. 2.5 billion out of 7.6 billion, uh, you, can, you, can, you can do the sums pretty easily to work out that one third of humanity is in this treacherous and, and dangerous uh, and difficult situation where their dreams and aspirations are really unable to be fully realised. Having said that, microfinance and inclusive finance is on the rise. There are 250 million people of the 2.5, so roughly 10%, that have had access to inclusive finance. And, uh, and there is a very significant impact. Uh, the, the, the UN, uh, the World Bank and others are investing in, rec in record levels in inclusive finance as, as a, a massive enabler. I want to turn now to Good Shepherd. I, I came back to ANZ after two and a half years in Cambodia. I spent two and a half years as head of community development finance at ANZ in corporate affairs. It was actually um, Elizabeth Prowse that asked me to come and uh, head up this part of, 
of ANZ um, with, uh, with John McFarlane. And I, it was an uplifting and positive experience. I, uh, I did spend, after that, um, four years at Reconciliation Australia as a director of the Reconciliation Action Plan program, the inaugural director of the RAP program, Reconciliation Action Plan. But this role six years ago um, was a, a, another breakthrough uh, part of my career, and, but, but in my life as a, as a human being. And seeing uh, that the Good Shepherd Sisters, a Catholic order of nuns, which uh, were formed, uh, form, had their formation in 1835 in post-Napoleonic, uh, the post-Napoleonic war period in France, uh, about three hours, uh, they, were, they were from a place, uh, the, the mother house is three and a half hours to the southwest of Paris in a place called Angers. And the story of the Good Shepherd Sisters is quite compelling, um, particularly their foundress, now St. Mary Euphrasia. And me researching this, uh, this opportunity made me as keen as I've ever been for any role uh, in my whole career. St. Mary Euphrasia and her sisters were living in a convent. Um, it, it, it was actually um, near St. Nicholas Abbey in Angers. And they were congregating, they focused on women and girls, and they were congregating every night around 5, 5.30, uh, around twilight, uh, in the park across the road from the convent, and going through the gate across the road and taking soup, blankets, food, and in some cases where they'd established a relationship, were playing a matchmaker um, to provide employment and, and, and other opportunities. And um, the bishop at the time uh, got wind of this, that the sisters were going across the road. And the bishop asked St. Mary Euphrasia, said, you know, the mother superior, you know, um, and, and said, I'm really mindful of, you know, that you don't place your sisters at risk of, of, of jeopardy, physical harm. And there was, and the sisters at the time have recorded that they also thought there was an implicit, um, you know, even though it was in the, within the Catholic Church and social justice and human dignity as a core part, there was an implicit suggestion that you may be in some way besmirching the good name of the Catholic Church by associating with, in inverted commas, fallen women. And asked the sister, uh, asked St. Mary Euphrasia, can you please not go through that gate to the park uh, and to, and to, to jeopardise your sisters? And obedience being one of the vows that the Good Shepherd sisters took, um, and in a, a patriarchal uh, church society, agreed uh, to the letter with what the bishop had said. But the bishop discovered three months later that the sisters' zeal to continue this work saw that there was a tunnel built from the convent underneath the road that came out on the other side where the park was and the good work of the sisters was continuing. And I think that when that story had spread from France across the channel uh, throughout Europe, uh, within 20 to 30 years, Good Shepherd had a presence in 30 or 40 countries. It's now Good Shepherd has a, Good Shepherd sisters have a presence in 72 countries around the world. Economic justice is a huge part of that, of that work. 
Um, I've only, um, we, we've only just finished a piece of work in Central America, I was just describing to Peter before, um, supporting women that have been left on the fringes of society um, from gang culture in Central America, uh, very uplifting new enterprises. And so Good Shepherd came to Australia in 1863. Again, supplement the post-Napoleonic war where men were out uh, you know, on, the, on the high seas and, and all over the country trying to defend or attack um, uh, wherever they were. But in Australia, it was a very different social dislocation, uh, 1863. Of course, it was the gold rush where men were leaving families at a rapid rate, going out and, and literally trying to find their fortune with women and girls on the fringes of society struggling to make ends meet. So uh, the Good Shepherd Sisters built the Abbotsford Convent um, from, uh, from 1863 onwards and to my knowledge uh, really formed Austra probably Australia's first post-settlement social enterprise by laundering the, heart, the, sh the, the sheets of the high-end hotels uh, like the Windsor and others um, around the place. Um, and fast forward to 1981, I might just take two more minutes, Peter, is that okay? Yeah. Just. Um, in 1981, uh, at a time when there was a, a rise in family violence and relationship breakdowns, many women and girls were still struggling in Collingwood in Victoria where the sisters were asked by the women not for a gift of a fridge or furniture to set up house at short notice, but for a small loan. And the lawyers and accountants, and there are probably many of them in the room today, including me as a CPA, advised the sisters not to create a corpus loan fund because you'll never see the money again. Against the lawyers and accountants' advice, the sisters did create a $20,000 loan fund called the No Interest Loan Scheme. And within six months, every single dollar was fully repaid. But the people at the time, the clients at the time said, this was way beyond a financial transaction. There was so much more than a transaction happening. There was a human transmission of hope. When you looked me in the eye and said, yes, if you repay this loan, someone in your situation will have access to the same opportunity. It created this sense of connectedness, of wholeness, and this circular community credit, and this, this sense of we are worthy, we are all in this together. And from that day forward, this program, the No Interest Loan Scheme, is an absolute national treasure. Many people know of microfinance um, around the world in so-called developing countries thanks to uh, Professor Muhammad Yunus from uh, Grameen Bank who was the Nobel Peace Prize winner in 2006. Two months after Professor Muhammad Yunus stepped out of his World Bank office as an economist and said here's a small loan to a trader in the market, a woman that was waiting outside his office as a trader in the market uh, to go and, and sell your produce and he unexpectedly was paid back more than he'd given. Two months later, the Good Shepherd Sisters here in Collingwood were developing so-called developed world microfinance. And so we are here today having reached Good Shepherd microfinance, having reached 230,000 people, impacting 250, sorry, impacting 
530,000 people when you consider uh, family and children and those that you cohabit with, and the evidence is in. Four out of five people that have accessed these loans have experienced economic mobility. They've moved away from financial crisis and hardship to a position of stability, income generation, and longer-term resilience. Not always going point to point, but in that right direction. That's in everybody's interest. Four out of five people that have accessed these loans have not used payday loans, very expensive, uh, short-term damaging uh, debt spirals uh, uh, have, been, have been avoided. And I want to finish now by describing in 30 seconds the experience of one of our most recent clients, and her name is Denise. Denise was running her own graphic design business as a mother, a married mother of two beautiful girls, uh, Olivia and Chloe, who, were, who are eight and six. Five years ago, she developed a, um, a constant migraine and had difficulty looking at the screen and ended up needing brain surgery. Her partner uh, didn't understand this situation and uh, ended up, after trying to care for her, leaving her and providing whatever economic resources he did have, which were um, absolutely inadequate, leaving her in a very difficult situation. After going, uh, re having surgery and renting a house and selling the pl place that they owned, she had $50 in the bank when she came to Good Shepherd Microfinance, a good money store in Collingwood. She took out a $500 loan to be able to get a license to operate heavy, heavy equipment. So she became, moved away from uh, graphic design to landscape gardening. And to this day, Denise will say, by not judging me when all other doors were closed, gave me hope and confidence for the future. Denise now runs her own landscaping business that has 12 people that she employs. She owns her own house. Her daughters are thriving. But if it weren't for that, being in that right place at the right time and finding the right uh, partner, the right transmission of hope, she would never have been in the situation she is today. So thank you to everybody in the room for doing what you do and your involvement with Rotary. And as you approach your centenary in 1921, uh, sorry, in, in 2021, in a few years' time, I say I take my hat off to everybody for your commitment to your communities and wish you all the very best. Thank you.